Hi, Jazz. Hi, Lilav. What's something cool or queer or Jewish you've been up to this week? Well, I just got hit by a wave of dust because we were doing some preliminary planning on our Rosh Hashanah episode for next week. And I was looking for old services, um, like the the things Papers, that you get. What are flyers? Papers? Handouts. Flyers. Hand, yeah, handouts is right, but like more narrow. What's it called when you get a handout for a specific service and it tells you what's going to happen? It's a supplemental text. It's a, I don't know. Order of service? Order of service. There we go. Sure. Um, anyway, I was kneeling down looking in an extremely dusty pile where I throw things that have emotional importance to me, but which I don't want to look at all the time. Mm-hmm. And... While rooting around back there for an order of service which definitely did not exist, I found the prescription fulfillment paperwork for my first ever prescription of HRT. Aww. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. I've probably mentioned this before, but I was lucky enough to be able to change my name legally before actually going on HRT, and also to have some leeway in deciding when I wanted to make that decision for myself. That's rad. Yeah, informed consent clinics are the way to go. Frankly, the state of transgender healthcare in the world is atrocious. Yeah. But like... My first experience trying to get hormones, I knew that I wanted to be on HRT at some point. I didn't know, like, exactly when I wanted that because of certain things related to gamete storage in case I ever wanted to have natural children. And the doctor at the, like, regular clinic was pressuring me, like, she wouldn't prescribe me hormones unless I, like, went through the entire decision first. What does that mean, went through the entire decision? Uh, like, stored my gametes or decided that I absolutely wasn't going to do it. And it's a whole process, And also, it's one specific kind of gamete storage facility. And so they assume that everybody going there is a man, which is wild. So, like, not only was there occasional misgendering, but also just, like, trying to figure out that whole nonsense. And it was a lot. And for months, I was just like... Yeah, I'll figure this out tomorrow. Oh, I'll figure this out tomorrow and pushing it down later and later. Mm -hmm. But I finally DQ'd from the waiting list for Family Tree Clinic and got an opportunity to do their whole shebang. And the nurse practitioners who worked there were like, yeah, okay, we can prescribe you HRT as long as you are physically ready to take it. And it'll be your decision as to when you want to start that. And so I was empowered by my healthcare provider to make my own decisions about my health. And I basically held on to this first prescription of HRT until New Year's 2017, when I was just like, 
you know what? This is a great time to start because I'll know exactly how long I've been on hormones. That's great. Right? So as we're recording this, I have been on hormone replacement therapy for eight months, 21 days, and 21 hours, uh, and also three years. Yeah, yeah. Can't forget the three years. Um, Yeah, that's just cool. I... Don't like the adversity, but I do enjoy remembering being met on my level. Yeah. And the thing is, I ended up making approximately the same decision that I probably would have anyway, but I wasn't being pressured to either sterilize myself or go through a really expensive and complex and demeaning process. Yeah. So, yeah. Jazz, what's cool and queer or Jewish in your life? Well, a nice Jewish thing that happened in my life is a Jewish friend of mine. Well, okay, a friend of mine who is, like, probably in the process of converting to Judaism, but, like, I don't know exactly where she's at in her process. Okay. Just, like, she's in process. Anyways, looking for a high holiday sidor. Aw. Because, you know, normally we'd be going in person to high holiday services, but... None of us are doing that this year. Oh, that's not happening this year? (laughs) Okay. I say very optimistically, none of us are doing that this year. Probably some people are doing that this year. Oh, God. I and my friend are not doing that this year. But she wanted a cedar. And holiday cedarim are kind of expensive. Yeah. Cedarim in general, if you're looking for ones that sort of meet our general values system (laughs) are often kind of expensive because people put a lot of work into them and they're kind of a niche product. When you say expensive, are we talking like $37.50 or like more? It depends. Uh, More. Okay. But that was such a specific number. So (laughs) back in ye olden times, when we used to have in-person services at Shirtikva, there was an announcement Mm -hmm. at the like end of services that was like, hey, everybody, if you borrowed a Sidur, remember to bring it in or bring $37.50 to the front office and we'll get a replacement copy. Uh Uh-huh. That's sweet. Yeah. It might have been 47. That sounds more plausible, honestly. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's a nice book. It is. Yeah. I don't know which specific book you had, but they're fairly expensive. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're looking for something with specifications, you know, there's a certain amount of like, I want something with transliteration and translation and gender neutral language for God and maybe readings that I'm going to feel okay about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that narrows your options because if you don't care about any of that, you can get a used Sidor for like under $10. (laughs) But that's for people who like, you know, don't need any of those things. Right. (laughs) Anyway, so now I have a fun project of tracking down a proper C-door for my friend and getting it to her in a way that costs her no money. Yeah, so. and involves less mental editing, which is, like, a really cool thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm looking it up, and you can get a digital version of Mishkan Tefillah, a reformed C-door, Uh-huh. the complete thing with Shabbat, weekdays, and festivals, from Jeff for $20. 
Or, apparently, a new hardcover version, also from Jeff, is $195. Sure. So I see what you mean about it being expensive. Yeah, also... <laughs> Hot diggity. That might be a weekday, Sidora. I don't know which one specifically you're looking at. High Holidays have their own specific... Right. Anyway, you have to get separate ones for weekdays and Shabbat and High Holidays, so it's a whole thing. <laughs> also, I think we're going to get her a Reconstructionist one. Ooh, fun. Yeah. But also they're expensive because there's maybe one or two synagogues and it is a synagogue, you know, that like makes this specific Sidor because mm-hmm. there's just not that many people who want it. So, alas, you know, I'm just going to call up some people on Monday and be like, can I buy one Sidor from you? <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week, we bring you queer takes on Torah, their jazz, and she's Lulav. And we're here to joke about Judaism and talk Tanakh together. Today, our Cheruta is learning Nitzavim Vayelech. We sure are. And I was a little nervous because it's another joint Parsha week. The last one. And they have been historically super long. <laughs> But these are relatively short, so I feel better about them. Yeah. These are two that are, like, actually reasonable to stick together. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Which is kind of (laughs) unusual. Do you have anything else to say as we're, like, nearing the end of the Torah? It's wild to be nearing the end. We've been doing this for a year. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, do you have things that you wanted to say about that? I mean... Mostly, it's that I got to the end of this joint Parsha, and I was like, okay, I'm using a big text copy of the Torah, and there are only like 10 pages left. What the heck? Uh huh. So I just read through the rest of it, and like, this is the last thing we get where it's Moshe talking to us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not entirely true. Right, but like, For Hazinu, it's a poem, Mm -hmm. followed by, like, a paragraph or two of narration. The poem is Moshe talking to us. Right, he's expressing the words of his heart, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that poetry is, like, a slightly different medium from, you know, slightly edited speeches. Okay. And then Vizot HaBracha is, like... A blessing in the form of a poem. And it's essentially the same thing where we get the poem and then we get a little bit of narration and then we're done. So this is the last time when we have Moshe speaking to us, you know, grandpa yelling things from the mountain instead of grandpa singing us lullabies. I would not have described the next one as singing us lullabies. And in fact, I didn't. Do you want to hear what I did say about it in my summary? Oh, I do. How many seconds would you like for that summary? 
I think I can do it in 30. Okay. Haven't tried it, so we'll see how this goes. Do you remember what happened last time you said you wanted 30 seconds? I'm going to do it in 30. Okay. (laughs) Soldier on, brave text warrior. (laughs) Three, two, one, go. Moshe wraps up a dramatic monologue. He warns people that there will be consequences for their actions and says that Torah is actually super close to you all the time, super easy, and it's not like this very passage is going to be argued about and reinterpreted for hundreds of years, right? So simple. Moshe tells everybody that he's going to die, gives final instructions to his successor because he's an anxious Jewish mother, tells the people, you behaved like this when I was alive, so how much worse will you be when I'm dead? No, 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 it's fine. I'll sit in the dark because like any Jewish mother, he can totally lay a guilt trip. Finally, he prepares to launch into his slam poem and leaves on a cliffhanger. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, you were over by five seconds and we are going to have to stop the entire project now. (laughs) Just shuddered. (laughs) I was so fast. And yet. You were. It was really good. Hubris. So we see, just as the people can't continue with only Moshe's guidance, that occasionally you have to have, you know, revised estimates of what the work is going to look like. Okay. (laughs) All right, let's go through it more slowly then, in a way that people can actually understand. I would love that. Where do we stand coming into this Parsha? Is this a joke about the name of the Parsha? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I thought it was a beautiful segue, (laughs) but maybe that's not how you were starting your summary, and I was wrong and should let you. (laughs) No, uh, have you ever heard of the Dan Nichols song that has the lyric? If you are a Tem, then we're Nitzavim. We stand here today and remember the dream. (laughs) (laughs) that's cute (laughs) i did go to jewish summer camp and i very much did not (laughs) unfortunately so thank you for bringing back your camp songs wisdom (laughs) and tell me a little bit about what that song means to you that's the beginning of the parsha so it starts Mm -hmm. atem nitzavim atem is like y'all yeah (laughs) and nitzavim is like our standing nice Although it is an unusual word to use for standing. So the root is an uncommon way to talk about standing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it maybe more of a sense of place than a sense of literally standing up? That's a good question. Because we use other forms of standing liturgically as well. Like the Amida is the standing prayer. <laughs> that one seems like literal standing. <laughs> sure. But, you know, it's also just got resonance. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this one is maybe a little bit more metaphorical. It can be related to things like to be fixed and established and determined. Cool. Ah. Determination. Okay, so we start with Moshe saying, you stand here, all of you, before God. And he lists off a bunch of people (laughs) who are there, basically indicating everybody's there. Everybody. The two genders, woodchopper and water drawer. (laughs) And notes that, like, you're here to enter the covenant. That it's like, we're making this covenant not even just with you, but with you who are standing here and with those who aren't. Mm -hmm. Is that the point of contention that you were talking about in your summary? No. What are you referring to? 
Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, you said something in your short summary about a line that definitely hasn't been interpreted a whole bunch of different ways. Oh, no, that one's a little later. Okay, cool. Do you have something you want to say about this one? I just really like that there is an explicit statement that there will be others in the covenant. Yeah. Like, conservatively, you could interpret this as with y'all and with your children. Uh Uh-huh. But I think it's the same sense in which we say everybody who will ever be Jewish received the words at Sinai. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't say children. Right? Like, plenty of times there are places where it does, and this one... Very specifically, your children, and here it's just, like, those who are not with us. Yeah. So, love a convert. Also, just to note, there are quite possibly other converts who are there right there. Right. There is a reference there to, like, the stranger within your gates, ve-ger-ha. And, like, ger is often a word for people who weren't originally part of your community and now are. Hey, you said ger-ha? Mm-hmm. Is that, like, your stranger? Yeah. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. Even your stranger. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you for pointing that out. Also, I enjoy that it's got a little bit of a folksy, well, you know, that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we passed through in the midst of various other nations. <laughs> the first two paragraphs of this Parsha begin with y'all and well, you know, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. Moshe's secretly from the Midwest. It's all good. So are there any things from this like second big paragraph that stand out to you? Well, the next bit is about like... When hearing the words of these sanctions, such a one may imagine a special immunity, thinking, I shall be safe, though I follow my own willful heart. And also, then the next bit is, to the utter ruin of moist and dry alike. Yeah, uh, this is definitely the thing where it's like, here are two opposites, and by saying that, we include everything. Mm-hmm. Mirism. Mirism, thank you. What? Like, what about the specific choice of dryness stands out to you? I know this isn't what it means. Okay. It's a little bit of a, like, here are your tender queers, and here's your sarcastic, (laughs) rude people. (laughs) Okay, good. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you're very handsome. (laughs) The other thing that I think of is, like... Mold grows well in moist conditions. Okay. So it might be saying, like, both the people growing in dissension within a community and the people who are just kind of out in the sun and not particularly prone to leave the covenant. Okay. And what does that indicate for you? Is this like a Jacob and Esau thing? Um, explain that a little more. You know, one of them was out in the fields and, like, doing his thing and physical labor, and the other Mm. one was, like, in the tents, chilling there. No, what I mean by that is, in the last Parsha, we talked a lot about how all these good and bad things are meant for the community as a whole. Everybody who subscribes to the covenant needs to actively continue upholding that covenant or else some really bad stuff is going to happen to everyone. And so when we talk about the moist and the dry, it's comparing it to houses from way back when. The treatment for mold in a house is to tear out all of the parts of the house that have that and rebuild. Otherwise, the entire thing gets moldy. 
Okay. So I think that's why that specific mirrorism was chosen here. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Sure. Regardless of how we feel about that particular sentiment, I think that's what's being said here. Okay. Also, your example of mold reminds me of medical stuff, too. Okay. And the way that public health is a public thing, right? Like... I shall be safe though I follow my own willful heart. Like there's a bunch of things where you can't say it's fine because I'll be fine. Right. If not, everybody's going to be fine. Exactly. None of us are fine until all of us are fine. Yeah. Okay. So in the next bit, if people are running amok like that, they aren't abiding by the agreements that they made. There's the thing about your descendants and people from other places will see that there's plagues and diseases and the soil is devastated and everybody will ask, why'd God do that? And they'll be answered, well, Well, because the the people people didn't abide abide by by their their agreements. agreements. Mm -hmm. They They couldn't couldn't live live there there anymore. Perhaps because they had an economic system that was meant to enrich the already rich and impoverish the people who have nothing but in general do all the work. And also there was a racial hierarchy set up where bias led to people being displaced and generally oppressed. Okay, sure. I'm sure that has nothing to do with anything going on right now. You can go in that direction. (laughs) Absolutely. I, yeah, you can definitely take it in that direction of like, they did terrible things in that particular place. And so they didn't get it anymore. You could also take it in a different direction, which is the thing that I was thinking about. Like, God is building a home and a life with these people Mm -hmm. and doing so on the basis of a set of certain agreements, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then those people just aren't abiding by those agreements. Let us say, (laughs) as an example, theoretically, I had invited you to come visit me and did so contingent on the fact that you treated my roommates nicely. Mm -hmm. And then if you came to visit and did in fact do that, then we'd be like, great, this is wonderful. If you came to visit and did not in fact do that, I would be like, well... You do have to go home now. You cannot stay here. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, you are standing on Mount Gerizim and saying, we can play four player card games that involve bidding on tricks. (laughs) And standing on Mount Eval and saying, I am kicking you out of my house if you are mean. (laughs) Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, well, like, it feels to me that there's good precedent to be like, if you invite somebody into your life under the conditions that they're like being good to you and then they are bad to you you don't need to keep them in your life you know and in particular if they're living in your home and you're like well i actually do not think we live well together you do not have to keep living together which is speaking of 2016 something that i wish i had told myself (laughs) but anyway god is modeling better relationship deals. Yeah, right. I like how a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in discussing Torah has involved looking at these divine agreements and like national agreements and applying the same logic to them as we would to interpersonal agreements. Mm -hmm. Because like, 
fundamentally treating people well means treating people well, regardless of how many people are included in that focus. Yeah. So then what happens? So there's this one little line that I would love to hear your thoughts on if you have any. Okay. 2928. Concealed acts concern God, but with overt acts, it is for us and our children ever to apply all the provisions of this teaching, Mm -hmm. this Torah. The first thing that comes to mind is like intent is something that you have to work out with yourself and Hashem. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody does not take action irrespective of their community. Mm. Like, if you evict people from the property that you own Mm -hmm. because they are not giving you as much money as they possibly could be in a crisis situation, or frankly, even in a non-crisis situation, when you do that, the whole community sees that evil. But, like, when you're just, you know, trying to figure out how to, like, balance your personal budget or something, I don't know. That is what I am seeing as a concealed act, something where it's, like, just about you and not about the community. Mm, Yeah. If it affects other people, then it is up to all of us to make sure that the effect is just. Yeah. Like, okay, we're coming up on the high holidays. There's stuff in how Yom Kippur is framed, where like, if you think of it as a thing you've done wrong, that's between you and God, Yom Kippur makes up for it completely. Mm -hmm. If you've done a thing wrong, that's between you and another person, (laughs) Yom Kippur does not make up for it until you've made it up to that other person. Right. And unless you have. So sometimes this is a really helpful thing to think about. Like if you're a person who struggled with self-harm and you're like, this feels like a thing that is bad that I've done to myself. Mm -hmm. And maybe depending on how you think of it in your relationship with God, you get a fresh start with Yom Kippur, you know, like, That one's just between you and your God. But the same is not true if you hurt somebody else during that year. (laughs) So you have to make it up to them or apologize, you know, unless they have indicated that they don't want to hear from you because that's just doing more harm. Yeah. And then once you have done that, like if you go to your friend and say, hey, I'm sorry I said that really mean thing. I won't ever do it again. And it was really inappropriate. And I would like to make it up to you in this particular way. And your friend says, thank you for your apology. I accept it. I see that you're behaving differently now. I'm down to move forward. Then you can go, can Yom Kippur give me a fresh start? And then it can. Mm -hmm. A thing that I thought of while you were saying all that is like with the self-harm thing or with other kinds of self-harm, like overuse of substances, like you get, you know, a two month chip for not hurting yourself in those ways. You don't get a two month chip for not being a douchebag. (laughs) There's like other stuff that goes into that. Uh Uh-huh. So I just also, I think this is partly what you were just saying, but I want to say it very explicitly. Mm -hmm. I don't think self-harm makes you like a a bad person. That's like a thing you need to atone for. It has been in my own life helpful for me to think of the new year as a fresh start. So yeah, that's cool. I just want to be clear that I'm not like condemning that as a moral wrong, just like a thing that people can struggle with. Yeah. I guess part of how I think about moral wrongs, if it's okay if we just like spiral down on this topic. (laughs) Yeah. The issue, the like concealed act that concerns Hashem is that you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah. That's not like 
a stain on your soul or something like that. It's just you have to do better next time. Yeah. If the problem is that you're not taking care of yourself, take care of yourself. (laughs) And that's the teshuva that you need to do. Yeah. And sometimes it is helpful to have a conception of God as caring about that so that I can make a promise about it to someone who's not me. Right. And also somebody who isn't like a person who has all of their like potential judgments or interactions with you. It's just like, I am vibing with the universe Uh about taking care of myself. (laughs) Yeah. And I just think that's neat. Yeah. Next. God's like, bad things happen, and you're all scattered. If you want to be, you can be gathered together, even if your outcasts are at the ends of the world. From there, you can still be gathered together, which is nice. Especially if you don't think of it as being gathered together has to mean you literally all go to the same physical place. Well, I think that's the textual context. Because 35... And Hashem will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he shall make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. Unnecessary textual context. Agreed. I don't think that you need to have that. Also, in like a paragraph worth, we're gonna Mm -hmm. come to some lines that one of my favorite stories involves very esteemed rabbis taking this line pretty firmly out of context. (laughs) Okay, I can't wait. I think that if you're like, every line of Torah is holy, any line can stand on its own. You can make it mean whatever it means if it stands on its own. (laughs) You don't have to read every line in context. Anyway, so the bit I was referring to there... Yes, please. ...is in 3011. Surely this instruction, or this mitzvah, which I enjoin upon you this day, is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that you should say, who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us? No. The thing is very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart, to observe it. This is my favorite Talmud story that we definitely have talked about on this podcast, but yes, please go where you're going with this. Okay. I heard a really interesting take on it since the last time we've discussed it on the podcast, I'm pretty sure. Ooh. Anyway, but this bit and the next bit are a little different, but they're both about, hey, you fool, you nincompoop. The Torah is so easy. (laughs) Observing it is right there. It's like right in front of you. You absolutely can do it. It's a four dummies book. Like, that is what the text is implying here. And so the story that I was going to tell, do you want me to tell the Avon of Achnai story? Yes. Okay. If you want to follow along at home, this is in Bava Metzia on 59B. I guess starts technically at the very end of 59A. The rabbis are arguing over whether a particular kind of oven can be ritually pure or not. Like, is it susceptible mm-hmm. to impurity or not? It's like an oven that you can, like, put into pieces and assemble and, like, carry around with you. Anyway, this is called the Oven of Achnai. And the more permissive Rabbi Eliezer said that it could be pure. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis said, no, 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 it can't be. And they deemed it impure or susceptible to impurity, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. And Rebbe Eliezer gives a million answers to support his position. We don't get any of them in the text, but he gives a million answers <laughs> and they did not accept his explanations. And so he was outvoted and he was like, well, okay, but I'm right though. If the halacha is on my side, this carob tree will prove it. And a carob tree was uprooted from its spot and it walked, some say 100 cubits and some say 400 cubits to prove his point. And the rabbis were like, okay, buddy, but we don't get proof of halacha from a carob tree. <laughs> and Rabbi Eliezer is like, well, if the halacha is on my side, the stream will prove it. And the water in the stream turns backwards and goes flowing in the opposite direction. And they're like, okay, but we don't get halacha from a stream. That has nothing to do with anything. Rabbi Eliezer is like, well, if the halacha is in accordance with my opinion, the walls of the study hall will prove it. And they, like, start caving inwards. Hey, you can't do that to a Beit Midrash. (laughs) The main rabbi who is opposing him, Rabbi Yehoshua, scolds the walls and says to them, if Torah scholars are arguing about halacha, what business do you have getting involved in this argument? (laughs) So the walls didn't fall because they were trying to respect Rabbi Yehoshua, but they also didn't straighten all the way up because they wanted to respect Rabbi Eliezer, and they just kind of stayed diagonal like that. (laughs) And then Rabbi Eliezer says, okay, we'll just really settle this. If the halacha is in accordance with my opinion, shemaim, like the heavens will prove it. And a divine voice, a bat kol, comes down and says, the halacha is in accordance with Rabbi Eliezer every time. All the time. He's right. And Rabbi Yehoshua stands up and yells back and quotes this verse mm-hmm. from Devarim 30.12 and says, It is not in the heavens! <laughs> and another rabbi offers an explanation of what he meant. Since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, we don't draw the halacha even from a bat kol, even from a divine voice, because, listen, you already gave us the Torah. (laughs) It's not in the heavens anymore. It's down here on earth, in your mouth and in your heart. Like, it's right here. Mm -hmm. And so we get to decide what the halacha is. You can't, like, come down and give addendums. And God smiles and says, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Now, often the story ends there when people are telling it. And that's probably where we ended it last time. Mm -hmm. That's not where the story ends. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. The story continues and says, since now the majority of the rabbis agreed that Rabbi Eliezer was wrong, they took all the things that had ever been declared ritually pure by him. And like, since we know we can't trust his opinion, they burned them all in a fire. And then they decided that he was to be excommunicated. They sent Akiva to tell him that he was excommunicated because he liked Akiva and Akiva liked him. And Akiva was like, if somebody who didn't know him went, he might destroy the entire world (laughs) since he's already like done some magic with the trees and the stream and the walls. And so Akiva, like, comes in mourning clothes and sits far away like you're supposed to do with somebody who's excommunicated. And Rabbi Eliezer asks him why he's behaving weirdly. Rabbi Akiva says very tentatively, like, my teacher, it appears that your colleagues are distancing themselves. And Rabbi Eliezer tore his clothes and removed his shoes, sat on the ground and shed tears. 
And because he was crying, the olives in the town were spoiled, and the wheat, and the barley, and dough that was being kneaded at the time. And also, when he looked at things, they burned up because he had laser eyes. (laughs) There were huge (laughs) waves that were threatening to drown the head of the Sanhedrin, Rabban Gamliel, who happened to be at sea at that time. And Rabban Gamliel was like... It wasn't for my sake that I, I did it, or for the sake of anybody personally. It was for the sake of you, God. And then the seas calmed down. Anyway, it's like a whole rest of the story yeah. that ends with Rabbi Eliezer dying. <laughs> I am increasingly seeing why the Karaites didn't like our rabbinical ancestors. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> I love them. I think there's so much richness here. Imagine if we only had this text and no tradition of, like, yelling back at it. (laughs) Not to say that that's what modern Karaites do. I just, No, I get it. I'm just, this is cancel culture. (laughs) Is it? So the person that I learned this from this summer was like, what's troubling a little bit about Rebbe Eliezer's story is that, like, often we focus on the, like, humans don't have to bow before God part. The joy of it's not in the heavens, it's here on earth. And God being like, my children have defeated me, my children have defeated me. But it's also a story of like, Rabbi Eliezer puts forward a bunch of reasons, and we don't get to hear any Mm. of them. And he's right. (laughs) Like, all of these miracles happen to show that he's right. But he's just outvoted. He's the minority voice. And they're like, we don't have to listen to minority voices. Mm -hmm. Even when they're more accurate. The person who taught it to me was like, a lot of the people who tell the story do it as a like, sort of revolutionary, we get to make the rules. And also they'd probably be outvoted. You know, (laughs) we're over here telling queer Torah. And I think I'm right. Also, I'd probably be outvoted. Mm -hmm. Even though the water ran backwards... And a voice came down. Even though I'm going to get laser eyes at the end of it. Yeah. Going to have to change your name to Scott Summers. (laughs) Anyway, before I move on, did you want to say more about... X-Men? No. (laughs) Mostly just that, yeah, I think the preservation of minority voices is very important. If it were something like, if you were in the minority saying that a modular oven is uniquely susceptible to impurity, or like saying something that becomes very exclusionary. Mm. And it's clear from the community that like, that's not how we need to conduct ourselves. Mm. Then I would be fine with canceling him. Mm. But the fact that he says this is under certain circumstances, not susceptible to impurity in the way that you're talking about Mm -hmm. the fact that he says hey we can chill a little bit yeah if we need to yeah and that doesn't preclude going with the majority opinion you know i just think that's a wild and mostly inconsequential thing to cancel someone over Mm. well partly the reason i brought up this story also Mm -hmm. and i agree with you on that part is like the original part of this in nitzavim is talking about like Torah's easy, y'all. You can just (laughs) do it. Mitzvot are easy. It's just right in front of you. And then there's this whole argument about how it's so not easy. (laughs) And they quote this text to be like, now we get to decide because you just gave us a text and then we have to interpret it. And 
I appreciate this way that a verse can mean in one context, it's just right there. And in another context, it means something really different. But also the thing about that is even when something is easy, putting it into practice can be really hard. Mm -hmm. For instance, we talked about how this is a short double Parsha. And yet we've already been recording for an hour and a minute. Oh no. So like it's more in the implementation than in the ease of understanding the thing itself necessarily. Hmm. Can you tell us about how Moshe Vayelech or whatever? Yeah. Vayelech Moshe. Is went. He went. Like the word cholech is like walked. Anyway, Moshe announces, I'm 120. I am no longer going to be leading. Y'all got to take over and calls over Joshua and is like, be strong and resolute because it's you who are going to lead now. And he writes down the Torah and gives it Mm -hmm. to some priests who put it in the Mishkan. And Moshe tells them to celebrate Sukkot. Then God tells Moshe that he's going to die. So calls Joshua to him. They're in the center of the Mishkan. And God appears in like a pillar of cloud and has a chat with Moshe before he's about to die and says like, Tell this poem to the people because it's going to be harder for them to behave properly once you're not there to guide them. You're not going to be like the ultimate person that they can pass things up the chain to. So you got to give them this extra instruction. So Moshe writes down a poem and he says this thing of, well, I know how defiant and stiff-necked you are. Even now, while I am alive, you're behaving like this so badly and I don't like it. But, you know, I guess that's just what you're like. Yes, it's fine. But you're going to behave much worse after I die. I know. You don't have to tell me otherwise. That's not very encouraging. I have made you this short instructional poem so that you may know what to do after I die. And then and cliffhanger. Right? <laughs> yeah, we don't get the poem this week. Next Parsha. Two weeks, yes. Rewinding a little bit. 31.10, and Moshe instructed them as follows every seventh year at Sukkot. You shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Mm. Is that a thing we do? Do we have like septannual? Heptannual? No. Whatever. Do we have Sukkot readings of Torah every seven years? Not that I know of. That's not to say no, but not that I know of. But there are other things that are every seventh year, and this might have gone away when the rest of the Shemitah year things went away. <sighs> rest in peace to a real one. <laughs> so yeah, that's the Parsha. <laughs> that's both of the Parshots. Yeah. Thank you. Correct. I think that brings us to a very special segment called Writing God's Writing, in which we rate the writing which we have received. Lulav, out of a hundred and twenty years that Moshe lived, how many years of Moshe's life would you rate this week's reading? I think I would rate it 118 <laughs> because he's been the old guy for so long that he's been telling a lot of the same stories Mm. over and over again. But like, the thing is, he's in a part of his life where he can feel that there's not much time left. And Mm -hmm. so can the people around him. And so the way in which he tells those same old stories over and over again That's novel and interesting and is the thing that you're really going to remember when he's gone. Mm -hmm. 
that last little bit when you see a different aspect of him. Mm. And you will, of course, remember how crotchety he was. How he told you that oh, you're just not going to behave as well. Like, we're not even going to think positively about this. You're not going to be great. And so here's a poem. But at the same time, there was a lot about, like, specifically acknowledging that the people who are receiving this message aren't the only people who are ever going to be part of the covenant. And, like, talking about how you deal differently with the community than you deal with yourself. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting Parsha, and I think this is the last two years of his life. Okay. Jazz. From woodchopper to water drawer, what is the gender of this double Parsha? Ah, okay. (laughs) Sorry that it's a really open concept. It sure is. I gotta give you harder scales. (laughs) You do? I think the gender of this Parsha is all of the people of Israel. Okay. Specifically including the stipulation of you elders, you children, you women, you men, you woodchoppers, you water drawers, your stranger. Because this is about how people live together and how they should live together. And it's about how do we read texts and interpret it? How do we live it Mm -hmm. out? How do we keep it as a living document? How do we manifest our agreements and our standards in our lives? And all of those things are things that everybody in a community has to figure out if we're going to live together. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's everybody. The gender of the Parshat is everybody. I like that. Jazz, can you take us to the close? I can. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivola, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. I also just got stickers from them, and I think you can also buy stickers from them right at the moment. Ooh. Right? (laughs) Our sound production this week is done by my lovely co-host, Lulav Arnau. I am so hungry that I can't think about anything. But what I am thinking about is how our transcript team of Jazz and Ruben, Dikal, and Hesed, they bring you full transcripts of every episode, and you can find a link to those transcripts in the episode descriptions. I'm Jazz Twersky, and you can find me at WordNerdKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Lenape people. I'm back in New York, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I'm Lulavarno, and you can find me at Spacetruck6 on Twitter. Or yell at me at Palmliker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinaabeg. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. I'm so hungry. <laughs> oh, babe, why didn't you eat anything? I... Yeah, I'm going to make some... We're going to do a gender of the week, and then you're going to go do that. That's why I said after this. Okay. So it's your turn, because I've done two in a row. This week's gender is collective and count nouns.
This week's pronouns are inclusive we and exclusive we.